You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. God bless you, brothers and sisters. Good morning. We're going to have a look at God's Word. We're actually skirting, flying along almost ahead of schedule this morning. So hope you're tuned in. Hope you're able to tune in for the next one. The title of today's message is Eight Days Later. You know, Harold Wilson, the English, uh, former English Prime Minister, said that a week is a long time in politics. But you know something? I think a week is a long time in lots of things. A week can be a long time in your relationships. It can be a long time in friendship. It can be a long time in careers. It can be a long time in your health if something is going wrong for you. It can be a long time seeing your hopes fall away. It can be a long time if your expectations are not being met or if your expectations are disappointed. A week is actually a remarkably long time when you consider the pace and reality of life and the rises and falls that can exist and can happen in human experience and even in the experience of a Christian. Now last Sunday morning I was talking, the message was entitled No Ordinary Sunday. And in it, I was looking at the resurrection of Jesus and how it was no ordinary Sunday for whole different people groups, for the Jews and for the city of Jerusalem, for uh, Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities, for the high priests and the priesthood. And how it was no ordinary Sunday for the disciples when the sun rose on that morning. It was no ordinary Sunday. And boy, would it go on to become no ordinary Sunday. It would become, as I was describing last Sunday, the very hinge of history. It would be what would determine whether Jesus was who he said he was or whether he was something completely and utterly different. It's recorded in all four Gospels. As I said, it's in Matthew chapter 28, Mark 16. It's there in Luke 24. We looked at Matthew last week. And in John 20. And it's to John 20 I'm going to take a look this morning. Because part of this story talks about what happened eight days after the events. Remember last Sunday we talked about the resurrection of Jesus and his appearance to the women at the tomb and about all the events that happened around that and how he appeared to the disciples and how they were overjoyed and uh, amazed and dismayed at the events that were going on around them. Well, I want to flash forward to about a week later. All has gone quiet. So much stuff has happened in the narrative that we couldn't possibly cover it all. But I want to pick up the story that when we get to eight days later, I'll talk about what I'm calling the odd man out. It's simply this. When all of the disciples saw and experienced Jesus and were in his presence, one guy is recorded as not having been there. And you're very familiar with who it is. It's Thomas, the disciple, also called Didymus, which means the twin. So this guy, Thomas, wasn't there at the event or the meeting where Jesus showed up on that very first Sunday. He appeared to show up and then doesn't appear to show up again all of the following week. I have a lot of sympathy for the bowl, Thomas. He's gotten a bad name for his experience of that week and for the events that overcame him. But I want to look at him a little bit more closely and see what lessons from his experience can be applied to our lives and to our realities. Let's have a quick look at what the scripture says. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. We've actually seen him with our own eyes. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands 
and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Now I have a lot of sympathy for Thomas because Thomas wasn't willing to accept the testimony of others. He wanted to see the evidence for himself. He was the guy who wasn't there. Now imagine what it was like to be in those meetings and those gatherings all that week. I think most of us may have actually experienced it. What is it like to be around other people who are overjoyed, who are delighted and excited and they're so, they're just brimming with joy at something that you haven't experienced. Sometimes that can be really hard in life when we see people go through events or have experiences that give them so much joy and we're excluded from those events or we're outside of the tent of experience as it were for those people. You might often see, you know the scripture says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Sometimes it's a lot easier to mourn with those who mourn than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because people can go through a great experience. It can be having a family, getting a new job, buying a new home, finding someone that they can build a life with together. And you look on and you say, well I'm not experiencing that. And the question immediately arises, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? Why is it that this person's experiencing it? You know, I think for any of us, for any of us, you've probably been in a meeting and you've been in, in an, an event or in a situation where perhaps everybody in a church meeting was really excited. They were delighted, they were overjoyed, they were full of faith and joy and expectation. Maybe they were testifying about miraculous works. And yet you sat there, and I'm telling you truthfully from my experience, I sat there and gone, I haven't experienced that. I don't know that joy that they're experiencing. I don't know that experience that they're having. That must have been what it was like for Thomas to be locked out of this experience. So if you've ever felt like that, here's a biblical character who has also experienced it and has been on the outside. In some senses, Thomas was self-isolating in his doubt. He was self-isolating in that he couldn't share the experience of the others. He was literally, as I said, the odd man out. Also, for those say, for the other disciples who went through this experience, you can imagine that on the Sunday they were excited and delighted and deliriously happy and then Jesus disappears from their eyesight and they don't see him. And you'd wonder if in that week that maybe the certainty, the certitude, the, the, the full confidence that they had on that Sunday maybe began to give way to questions to say, did I really see it? Were we all deluded? Were we just so lost in our grief that we, we began to see things that didn't actually happen? And I can imagine questions kicking in as well. Like so many Christians I've met and so many people who I've spoken to have experienced being at a meeting and being completely confident in the promises of God only to walk out the door and that certainty meets the circumstances of their life and their confidence can give way. Their hope can give way. Their faith can give way to the circumstances or the realities of their life. All of that I'd like to look at as we look at this story. So here's Thomas. He's in this experience, he's alone, he's isolated, he's the only one who hasn't experienced it. And here's something else, just something that needs to be borne in mind. Thomas was not a bad guy, and he wasn't a weak guy, he was a strong, tough disciple. If you read in John's Gospel chapter 11, at the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus from the dead, 
Thomas says, of all of the disciples says, when Jesus, when it was being warned that if Jesus went back to where Lazarus was, that the authorities there would kill him, Thomas spoke up and said, well then let's go and die with him. You're not talking about some lily-livered coward. You're talking about a deeply, profoundly committed, loyal friend of Jesus. That's who you're talking about. And so our narrative continues. Eight days later, eight days after these exciting events, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, just as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And I can imagine peace was in the room. There was certainly silence in the room as their jaws dropped open yet again. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless anymore. But believe. Believe, Thomas. No, you've seen the evidence. We spoke last week about evidence. He says, no, you've seen the evidence, Thomas. There's no need or no room for your doubts anymore. No, you must believe. And sometimes in our life, God gives us the grace that we see the evidence. We see the proof. We look at it in our lives. And he says to us, no, we must believe. Based on what we see of the evidence, we must know believe. I want to look. And of course, Thomas responded and he worshipped. And he said, my Lord and my God, he exclaimed. My Lord and my God. He was just blown away. His, all of his doubts just faded into the reality of the real living Jesus standing in front of him. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if in your kitchen this evening, as you're preparing supper, that Jesus appears in literal physical form and you can bow down and worship him and any doubt you've ever had absolutely evaporates. But that's just not real life and that's not a life of faith because every person of faith experiences doubt. But let me just define doubt for a moment. I thought it was worthwhile just to define doubt just for a second in this context. Here's, this is from Merriam-Webster, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. This is where it comes from. So doubt is one, to be uncertain about something. That's a reasonable thing. To believe that something may not be true or is unlikely. We'll get to that. To have no confidence in someone or something. That's a fair, simple, three-line definition of doubt. Now, I like this one in the middle, to believe that something may not be true or is unlikely. And here's the most unlikely part of the story, and you know the story. And that is that what people have known for millennia and for generations, that the dead stay dead. They don't get up out of their graves and walk again. I was watching the, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the guy who's charged with the murder of George Floyd. Uh, it happened in Minnesota last May, maybe, because the whole world knew about it. I was watching that, and it was a very interesting thing that one of the, the, one of the, 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 the lawyers for the prosecution questioned one witness, and he said to him, have you ever, in all of your 40 years of experience, seen a person in police custody whose heart has stopped suddenly come back to life again? And he said, no. And it was, a, it was a dead stop moment in what was a, a riveting trial, a riveting uh, case that's going on. It was a reasonable doubt. People who are dead don't come back to life. I've never gone to removal. I've never gone to a funeral where suddenly the lid opened and somebody said, surprise! 
I believe. I've never seen it happen. Neither had Thomas. Neither had the disciples. It was a reasonable doubt that he had. But even better, he wasn't on his own in the doubt. Thomas gets the bad name. I'm conscious of Thomas in the background, and I keep on talking about Thomas being a doubter and getting a bad name. Not too far. Anyway, uh, he wasn't on his own, and that's a very important and a key point to remember. Here's what the scripture records. This is from Luke. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. Look, very important. But the story sounded like nonsense to them, the men. So they didn't believe it. So all of the big, hard, tough disciples, they didn't believe the story either. Here's another, here's another example of it. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee. This is later in the story. This is after 40 days. Going to the mountain where Jesus had told them where to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But look at this last caveat. But some of them doubted. He was standing in front of them. And still, some of them doubted. So Thomas was not in bad company. And if you struggle with doubts at times, it's okay. You're in good company too because the disciples and the apostles struggle with doubts. Every Christian who's ever had faith has struggled with doubts. And I don't just want to talk about doubts. But, um, here's a guy called Alistair McGrath. Alistair McGrath is a theological professor. He's a theologian. And he's a writer, and he's a speaker, and an excellent writer, and an excellent speaker. Um, and this is what, he, uh, he's written entire books about doubt, and he's written books about uh, Richard Dawkins, and he's confronted the likes of Christopher Hitchens, and these other people who were opponents of the Christian message. And here's what he said about doubts. He said, doubt arises within the context of faith. If there were no faith, there would be no doubt. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. But it is not, and need not, be a problem. You see, there's a time for a healthy skepticism, and that's a good thing. And there's a time to be healthily doubtful about somebody telling you something. Like, I know certainly as a parent, I've heard stories from my kids over the years, and I definitely would raise an eyebrow and go, mm, I don't know if that's entirely the true story, what exactly happened here, especially if they're uh, having an encounter with one another. You don't, you're not always certain that you're getting the real story. But you know, it arises in the context of faith. It is not and need not be a problem. It's often said that the devil is in the detail, but I think the devil is in the doubts. And doubts are very often for a moment. If you look at Thomas's life, for instance, here we have this week of doubt for Thomas, eight days between the resurrection and the time that he actually encountered and experienced Jesus, eight days. But if you look at his life, if you look at the whole picture of his life, Thomas was a profoundly faithful man. According to tradition, he went and spread the good news in India, and there he was martyred in India. That's the story of Thomas. The churches of St. Thomas are actually all over India, even to this day. So this was a moment of doubt. But you know what? The enemy, the enemy of your soul, the devil, would have you focus on the doubts. He'd have you think about the doubts. Do you know something? A life of doubt doesn't amount to anything. There has to be a time when we say, I believe, I accept, I'm going to walk by faith. There is the way that doubts cause us to look in. They don't help us to look out, and they certainly don't help us to look up. So when we entertain the doubts, the old saying, I mean, it's, the old saying is true, you know, feed your faith and starve your doubts. But you have to take action. Have you got a doubt? Ask the question. Go in search of the evidence. And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about your life. No. I'm not talking necessarily about, I doubt that the Gospels are true, or I doubt about the, you know, that the Christian faith or that there's a God. I'm not talking about that doubt, but those are profound doubts. I want you to think for a second 
about the doubts that come into your life when you go through a bad experience or a bad circumstance. The doubts that may have flooded your mind when a pandemic, for instance, starts, or when a child gets sick, or when you lose your job, and those doubts begin to creep in. And the question is, how do you address those doubts? How do you look at those doubts? Doubts about everyday living. And I want to say to you this morning, I know the Holy Spirit is speaking to some of you this morning who are right in this situation. You don't doubt that God exists, but you're beginning to doubt whether it was wise to trust him in this situation, or you're beginning to doubt, will God really come through in that situation? Is, is my relationship doomed? Is my, is my future in trouble? Is my career on the rocks? That's the kind of doubt I'm talking about. The response to that, the response to doubt is always evidence. I want to define evidence for a second. Bear with me on this one. I want to define evidence. I've got three simple ones in this one. That which tends to prove or disprove something. It is a ground for belief, also called proof. Here's another one. Something that makes plain or clear an indication or sign. Now I want you to start thinking about your life. Think about your life. Is there evidence of the goodness of God? Is there evidence of the presence of God in your life? Is there evidence to support your faith? I put it to you, I put it to you, that there is evidence to support all of those things. Here's the last definition. This is a courtroom one. In law, data presented to a court or jury in proof of the facts at issue, which may include the testimony of witnesses, which is what the Gospels are, records, documents, which is also what the Gospels are, are, are objects. They are things which are brought in to prove the case. You know, you could be dealing with people who don't know God at all. Do you know of the evidence to present to them for the existence and the presence of God? Do you have a responsibility to learn what the evidence may possibly be so that you can, as it were, give an account for the hope that's within you? That's what Paul encouraged the early Christians to do. Actually, it was Peter who encouraged them to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in them. You see, Jesus never asked us to take blind faith. Jesus never said blind faith. That, oh, just believe and that's it. Nothing else. Just accept what I said and that's it. Jesus himself dealt in evidential proof of his ministry and who he was. Here's a couple of instances where Jesus appeals to the evidence. Here we go. Jesus speaking in John chapter 10 said, if I do this work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe me. So Jesus is saying, even if you don't mean who I am, would you for heaven's sake just look at the evidence? Look at the evidence and see if there's evidence to prove and to show who I am, who I say I am. He gives another example. Here again, he's appealing. John 14, just believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. And he says, or at least believe because of the works you have seen me do. Jesus appealed to the evidence of his identity. Jesus appealed to the evidence. Jesus said, look at the evidence. That is why he appeared to Thomas, showed him his hands, showed him his feet, showed him the hole in his side. He wanted to appeal to the evidence. Anytime Jesus was confronted with doubts, his response was always with proof and with evidence. It goes on, here's in Acts chapter 1, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, like this one, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. He proved it. It wasn't, oh, just believe and that's it. He proved it to them. Now I want you to look at your own life for a second. 
And ask yourself, is there proof, is there evidence that supports your faith in God from your experience? Whatever situation you might be in, no, you may be as happy as them. At this moment, you may be the happiest person in the world, overjoyed, full of confidence, fully satisfied with where you are at and how your life is, and I praise God for that. In that event, perhaps, if you had leisure time, could you prepare to be ready to be able to give evidence to your faith? But for some of you who are struggling and going through difficult times at this particular moment in time, whether that is relationally, whether it is in your career, whether it's in your health or your hopes or your expectations, ask yourself, is there evidence from my experience to support the position of my faith? And I'd say to you, yes, there is. Jesus never tells us to just walk on blind faith alone. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, chapter, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things. Evidence. I think the word is echon. It is evidence of things that we have not yet seen. You see, very often when we examine our lives and we look at our lives from, from any perspective, we can fall foul to a thing that they call here's an acronym Waisiati. Waisiati. But what are you talking about? We fall for a cognitive mistake all of the time. It is a cognitive bias or a cognitive illusion. That's what it was described as by um, Daniel Kahneman, the writer of Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's really, really good. And he said, human beings are very poor at going beyond what they see. It's a, this acronym simply means what you see is all there is. And what you experience is all there is to experience. And what story you tell yourself about your experience is all that there is. Human beings are not very good at bringing in all of the evidence to examine their situation. And so we say, I lost my job. All I see is all that there is. In other words, I don't, I don't have any other grounds in which to believe that God is going to provide for me in this situation. Because I'm just experiencing this right now. My relationship is breaking down with my wife or my husband or my brother or my parents. And we have no reason to believe that anything could be any way different because we tend to believe that what we see is all that there is. But brothers and sisters, we walk by faith and not by sight. That is, Tom quoted a little bit earlier, we walk by faith and not by sight. That is so important. It is what we say, we walk by faith. We walk on the basis of the accepted evidence in our lives and in your life. That's what you walk upon. You walk upon that, not by what you see in front of you always. Because the truth of it is very often what we see in front of us is an illusion. It's a dump that the enemy would love to have us focus in on and look a little bit more carefully. And that's why he said we live by faith and not by sight. We don't judge our existence. We don't judge our experience simply on what we see physically in front of us. We have to be able to see that there is an entire spiritual realm. There's a whole purpose of God. And very often we can look up and we can't even see the presence of God in our situation or in our experience. We look onto our lives and go, I don't see the presence of God in this situation. I want to make my way back to Thomas. We live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. Is that is God going to provide for you? We live by faith and not by sight. 
Are you going to find someone to love and marry and build a life together? We live by faith and not by sight. Are you going to be able to do the exams and pass the exams? We live by faith and not by sight. We take action and we live by faith, trusting in God for the rest. I want to make my way back to Thomas. Because after Thomas experienced the presence of Jesus Christ in his life, after he experienced the literal, physical presence of Jesus, put his hand into his side. I mean, just, just think about that for just one moment. What would it be like to put your hand into the wound in Jesus' side? How visceral, how profound, how utterly super real would that experience be? And yet Jesus said something to him at the very end of this. He said, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And you may not see the physical Jesus in your life. I've met very few people who've met the physical Jesus. I've met very few people who've met him or had a, a vision of him in reality. But he said, blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And the good news for all of us, brothers and sisters, means that we now walk in that blessing. We are blessed simply because we, we believe in him. You know, it's so important that when Jesus says we, walk, we live by faith and not by sight, or sorry, when Paul said we live by faith and not by sight, and he said it in 2 Corinthians. When he said that, it's very important to remember that it's the resurrection itself that gives that potency. It's the fact that Jesus has been risen from the grave that gives all of these promises and all of these instructions their power. We live by faith and not by sight. You know, even when it doesn't look like your career is going well, even when it doesn't look like your, career, your, your relationships are going well, even when it doesn't look like your hopes are being fulfilled, even when it doesn't look like your health is going in the right direction. We live by faith and we live not by sight. But does this thing about the amazing disappearing Jesus that's been in my head and been in my soul for years. Why did Jesus appear and then disappear? Why didn't he just stay with them? Why didn't the resurrected Jesus just stay with them? Why did he continually appear and disappear? And I think simply it was to strengthen the muscle of their faith. It's not very hard to believe something that's right in front of you all the time. It's a lot more exercising. It's a lot more upbuilding to believe something that isn't always as visible in front of your eyes. Don't fall for the simple cognitive bias of what you see is all that there is, brothers and sisters. And here's the thing about it. Jesus made a promise. Jesus made a promise to his disciples at the end of Matthew, the very end of Matthew's Gospel, here is like the last promise that Jesus makes. And he says this, And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We think, why does Jesus appear and disappear? I don't sense him. I don't experience him. I don't, I don't have him going on in my life, you know what? Here is Jesus' promise, I am with you, even to the end of the age. In other words, even when you don't see him, he is still with you. Even when you don't experience him, he is still with you. When your circumstances say he is not, 
He is still with you. When your career says, He is not, He is still with you. All the time that Jesus appeared and disappeared, when He was with His disciples, He never actually was not with them. He was with them always, but not just visible to their eyes. Not just visible to them physically, but He was always there. I want to come back, lastly, to this. I want to come back again to my friend Thomas. And I want to say this to you. Wherever you are at the moment, sometimes you can experience being cut off from the experience and the presence of God. But I want you to do something. I want you to open your eyes to the primary evidence and the circumstantial evidence of the presence of God in your life. Of the goodness of God in your life. Of the provision of God in your life. Of the peace and protection of God in your life. You want to open your eyes to the primary evidence. That is the experience you've experienced yourself. The circumstantial evidence. The stories that other people have told you. So that we can be built up in our most holy faith as the scriptures call it. You know, wherever you're at this morning. Remember this. Even when Jesus is not physically visible. Even when your circumstances don't see it. Even when your career doesn't see it. Even when your relationship doesn't say it, he is with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to pray briefly, and then I'm going to hand back off to Tom. God bless you. I hope you've got something, you're built up in some way from listening to God's word this morning. I just want to pray. I want to pray for those this morning who are experiencing uncertainty in their situations or in their circumstances. I want to pray that they will know an extra, deep, profound touch of the presence of God, that they will be able to open their eyes. I pray for others that they will prepare their hearts and souls to be able to give an account for the hope that is within them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you. Lord, that you were crucified by the Roman authorities, but on the third day you rose again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that you appeared in many places over the following 40 days, in fact appearing to 500 people at once, according to Paul's testimony. Lord, we know that you're risen from the grave. We know that you are alive. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through doubtful experience today, Lord. Experience that's causing them to doubt, Lord. Whether it's upset in relationships or careers, family, life. Lord, you know their experience. They know their experiences. They bring it before you. Lord, I pray that they would have a deep and profound sense of your presence, of your promises, and of your protection and your provision in their lives, Lord. I pray that you would watch over them, Lord, and keep them safe in this current period, Lord, of uncertainty and of doubt. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't, as a people, fall prey to Wysiati, that what we see is all that there is. Lord, I pray that we would take the time to examine our entire lives, Lord. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we wouldn't focus on the doubts. We wouldn't look inward, Lord, but we would look outward, and most importantly, we would look upward to you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Go before us, Lord, as we look and search for that evidence. As we look and we seek it out, Lord, whether it's in our own soul or in the testimony of others, Lord. We commit ourselves into your hand. And may we know your presence in a profound way, in accordance with your promise, as we walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters.